Um, I cannot seem to get anything to go through Pro Tools the way it's supposed to. Menu preferences below. Yeah. Audio video. Uh, audio video, yes. Microphone is? Uh, microphone is built-in external. Oh, that could be it. Built-in. Yeah. So I want this one. Uh, something has gone very wrong on my end, and I don't know what it is. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Zombie film pioneer George Romero has died, but you gotta ask this question, will he return as... A member of the undead. The music behind the horror genre will introduce you to two men who had to invent new technology to give you the willies. The horror behind a music genre, from horrorcore to psychobilly. We'll look at who's influenced who. Plus, how Foley artists make that stabby sound. It's the blood gurgling that's the grossest. Oh! <laughs> oh boy, that's, that's scary stuff, isn't it? And now, Alan Cross. Michael Hainsworth. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> We've got breaking news on our big show on horror films. Yeah, we uh, record this on, on Sunday evenings, and just before we went to air and got into the studios, uh, we heard that George Romero, the creator of the... Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead movies, the greatest zombie film director of all time. A man that's responsible for everything zombie since 1968, uh, passed away at the age of 77. Oh, he's the guy I've got to blame for the zombie fetish we all seem to have. Well, you know, the zombie fetish is only something that came later. Um, between him and some Italian directors, they were the guys that did the zombie thing first. And I remember watching Night of the Living Dead, uh, black and white film, very low budget, very frightening. But my favorite horror film of all time is still Dawn of the Dead from 1978, where we have a whole bunch of human survivors holed up in a, in a shopping mall. Very, very gory. Not Shaun of the Dead? No, 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 no. But Shaun of the Dead resulted from all the Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead, or whatever. Have you ever felt that you're turning into a zombie? <laughs> George Romero was still working on, on zombie films, and uh, we, we have lost him, which is really sad. I can give you a bit of a music thing if anybody wants to explore. Uh, Dawn of the Dead was uh, soundtracked by an Italian prog rock band called Goblins, and uh, they did a bunch of other zombie films, including one, uh, and, and other horror films, called uh, one called... Uh, was it called Suspiria and a few others. So if you feel like getting into 70s prog rock with a bit of horror to go along with it, Goblins, or in some cases, The Goblins. The 1968 film Night of the Living Dead was made for $114,000. And then 10 years later, when he made the sequel Dawn of the Dead, they spent one and a half million. Yeah, and Dawn of the Dead is, is a much better film. First of all, it's in color. And, <laughs> and secondly, the uh, the prosthetic gore effects. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, for every million bucks they put into it, they made five. Yeah. 
Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. So, Alan, are you a fan of creepy movies? Yeah, because back in the 1970s, there was a an independent TV uh, station out of Pembina, North Dakota, that used to beam into Winnipeg. And every Saturday night at 10.30, they had something called the Chiller Thriller Movie. Hi, everyone. Count Floyd here, reminding you to watch this Saturday night at 11 o'clock for Monster Chiller Horror Theater. We got a scary one for you this week. It's that three-dimensional semi-classic Dr. Tongue's House of Cats. <laughs> it was all these bad indie uh, horror films from, you know, there were Hammer films, there were American International films. And, you know, I was such I was a young kid and these things would creep me out like you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while they would have something science fiction on, which were my favorite. And this is where I learned about the theremin. Oh, yes. Because that was, for me, the original creepy music machine. The last film, the, the last horror movie I actually saw um, was actually, I believe it's Canadian production called The Cube. You remember this one where the guy wakes up and he's in a room that has, it has doors on all sides, all six sides. Uh, and every time he goes into a new cube, it, it it's some sort of contraption designed to kill you. And you have to try to figure your way out of it. Yeah, vaguely. Actually, with that in mind, um, Mark Corvin is a a Toronto-based composer for film and television. He worked on that. He did the music for it. And he's since then done a a whole whack of stuff. He's been nominated 14 times for a Gemini, uh, a Genie eight times as well. Most recently, the 2015 Sundance Film Festival Best Director winner, The Witch. He did the creepy music for that, too. But the problem is, you can only do so much creepy with a Moog. Yeah, because all the sounds will be used up by now, and nobody's going to use a theremin anymore. So what he did was he contracted guitar maker Tony Duggan-Smith to build him the apprehension engine. Have you seen this? I have seen it, and I've heard it. I didn't know it was a Canadian invention. Isn't that crazy how creepy it is? Yeah, it is. It's really weird. Joining us now is Mark Corvin and the man who made this creep machine in the first place, the Toronto-based guitar maker, Tony Duggan-Smith. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. Great to be here. So I I guess, Mark, the whole idea was is that you just ran out of presets on your keyboard? Yeah, basically, I just wanted to reintroduce the the human touch of things. And Tony, that's where you came in. How did this come together? Well, Mark and I have known each other for a lot of years, and uh, and we actually had done a, a musical instrument project a few years ago that involved sort of moshing a cello and a uh, an Indian sarangi instrument together into one a what? thing. What's an Indian sarangi? <laughs> yeah, wait, back up. <laughs> you explain, Mark, exactly what it is. <laughs> Uh, the, the Indian sarangi is sort of like the, the North Indian violin. It's got three melodic strings and about 32 resonating strings. It looks like <laughs> a big... I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. 
but if you've got 35 strings in your instrument, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> How many fingers do you have? No, no. The, the cool part of it, you, you have the three melodic strings and all these other strings, they resonate. So it gives you like a reverb chamber. So it's oh, very okay. So, Tony, how, how does a guitarist get mixed up in that nonsense? Mark sucks me into these things. I, I think he uses hypnotism or something. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it's always fun and a pleasure to work with him, for sure. Alan, I just wanted to say something. <laughs> okay. uh, I haven't heard the words chiller thriller theater since I was a kid growing up in Winnipeg. Oh, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I totally do. Dr. Tang's House of Cats. This Saturday night, a monster chiller horror theater. Woo! 10.30 Saturday nights on KCND out of Pemina, North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Scared the crap out of me. I think the first thing I saw in that was uh, The Haunting. Yes. Yes. And I remember the one that I remember waiting for, and they repeated it a lot, was the thing with two heads with Rosie Greer and Ray Milland. It seemed like a good idea at the time. The white bigot was dying, and the black soul brother needed time to prove his innocence. More power to you, brother. I want to transplant my head on a healthy body. I think I like to donate my body to science after all. So they transplanted the white head onto the black body. Who would have suspected that neither would care for the idea too much? Wow. It has one of the greatest car crash scenes of all time in it. So, Mark, how, how did all of that in your youth inform the kind of work that you do today? Uh, well, as far as me getting into to horror film scores, I really just stumbled into it. Uh, I got a call from uh, Vincenzo Natale back in the late 90s to work on Cube. And I never worked on a horror film, and and I've always loved, I've always loved being weird musically, because you, you have so much, uh, like no one says that's too strange, that's too bizarre. You can just be as bizarre and strange as you want for the most part. So I, I was, uh, it, it was a good fit for me. Creepy as all get out, I'll tell you what. Then I did, really didn't do any horror aside from that until The Witch uh, in 2015. Setting aside the fact that you had to contract somebody to build a whole new instrument to do this in the 21st century, how do you go about scoring something that gives you the creeps? Well, it's it's a, a little bit difficult. Like the, the, the Witch, for example, was hard to do because the, the director wanted it to always be 10 on the distance creepy scale. So how do you go beyond 10? You know, you, you can't really unless you're in Spinal Tap. So <laughs> what I used, uh, you know, to to get creepier in that or to build the suspense and tension was by pulling things away and, and playing with textures and, and sounds and keeping it distant all the time, but by just playing with the orchestration of it to to keep it interesting. Now, I'm looking at a picture of an apprehension engine. Are there, is there more than one? There is only one, but uh, it's it's about to have many um, babies. Because this does, <laughs> this this does look like something that you built in your workshop. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, it was a it was a two week build from the moment Mark told me to the time it was finished. So I see. Okay, so it's like there's a platform, and mm -hmm. there's what looks like two guitar necks sticking out of the left side. And then there is a raised portion, which seems to have a couple of antennas sticking out of it. What's that for? Uh, radio, radio reception mostly. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. No, those are uh, those are the, the the whack rods. 
So basically, you you lift those up and let them go, and they go whack, 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 whack to infinity. I see here there are three uh, different uh, platforms sort of sticking out of it that you can either thwack or you can run uh, a read across. You know, what was the criteria for creating apprehension? Really, it was like in terms of deciding what what came up. It was like, oh look, there's some rods. I'll use those. Now, now you usually know, when you're making a musical instrument, you're looking for something that's going to make pleasing uh, tonal sounds. You were actually, actually looking. You were actually looking to make something that was disturbing in terms oh, of the sounds it made. Absolutely. The, the whole idea was to be as as offensive as possible. And you that. can imagine how difficult that is when your whole life, for me, has been making guitars that are that, that please people. <laughs> But I can imagine that there's a certain amount of, of physics associated with this that translates regardless as to whether you're looking for something harmonious or something that feels like nails on a chalkboard. Well, this would be all atonal stuff, wouldn't it? Oh, it's, it's totally atonal. I, if you like, I can take you through, you know, the different parts of the instrument so you get a better idea. Yeah, please. Yeah, go. Yeah. So in the front, we, we have some stainless steel rulers. They, they are actual rulers. And I play that with a, with a very short bow and um, just create various cycles of screeches. You know, I have this ro rotation to the bow that I use to keep it sort of sustaining. Uh, and then I have, um, the, do you know what a hurdy-gurdy is? It's, it's sort of a medieval uh, European instrument. It's, uh, th there's a crank on, on one end, and, and it's rosin, so, so you can get the strings in, in motion. Um, so we have this, this crank going on, and then we have, uh, I guess it's two rather large strings uh, to set those strings in motion. And I'll, I'll use my fingers to, uh, to pull on the strings and to create weird harmonics and sounds. Um, it's a very, very creative uh, process. I never know what I'm going to get out of it each time I, uh, I go to the instrument. And then on top of that, we have a single guitar string with a pickup and then something called an ebow. It's uh, short for electronic bow. And that basically uh, gets the string in, in motion. Uh, typically, you'll see guitar players use that and they, they use it basically to sustain the string. Um, myself, on the other hand, I like to grind it right into the pickup. So it just like screeches and, and howls and makes god awful noises. Uh, then we have um, on one side, uh, a spring reverb unit from a Fender Fender guitar amp, and you know if you smash it with your hands, it'll go bang like that. And I have another Ebo that I like I like to sustain those springs with to get them howling as well. So there's it's a lot of craziness in one box. But apparently you're going to be expanding this. You're creating children of this device. You're going to be actually building more of them. Well, the funny thing is, it's sort of like as soon as the film came out uh, on uh, on Great Big Story, we just started getting like people posting. You know, God, you know, every other other comment was how can I find one? You know, what does it cost? Where, who's making them? You know, and then, uh, and then people started mailing us. How much does it cost? <laughs> to be, to be decided. <laughs> it depends on, on, on the, there's so many possibilities, you so know, in this, terms of what, what you can make. So I, I, I'm, I'm looking at this and I, it's, I just realized that this is totally analog. There's nothing digital about this. Nothing. I do plug it in 
to like an amplifier. So it does have electronic outputs. But other than that, yes, it is totally analog. Well, hang on. The, the, the business geek in me is thinking, wait a minute. Why would you mass produce or make more than one of these? Wouldn't just having one of them give you a very unique uh, proposition when being approached by filmmakers? There's an awful lot of films that get made around the world, and Mark couldn't possibly do them all. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I could try. <laughs> but, but Mark will always have one version ahead of everybody else. Ah, very good point. So do you think you'll be making variations of the theme there, Tony? You know, Mark and I are fairly creative people. So it's like, you know, even before this one was finished, we had ideas for about 50 different, uh, you know, uh, add-ons and, and uh, varieties of directions you could go with each one of these that you make. If yeah. you're going to mass produce these things, what's going to change? You know, you have to be careful because a lot of what people like about this is that when they look at it, it could have been made any time in the next last couple hundred years, you know, and it's sort of, uh, you don't want to necessarily mess with that. You know, I mean, I've, you know, my whole life has been about, you know, half of it is the, uh, is the instrument and half it is, is the aesthetics. And there's something very cool about this where it's all about the noise, you know, and, uh, and just how far it can be disturbing, you know, rather than having a pleasant face that shines at you when you buff it. Well, and because you're going to be using maybe non-standard materials to make these things. For example, when you talk about the rulers that you, you know, you, you, you grind or you bow or you pluck or you twang or whatever it is, these rulers are not made to any kind of musical standard. So <laughs> it's... But Yep, yeah, you know, but I had to go through a lot of rulers to find the ones that actually sounded the worst. And, and, and what's the worst ruler to use if you're trying to make some good horror music? I, I would never say that for fear that the company wouldn't sell them to me anymore. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thing has me thinking of, of course, Kate Bush and Experiment 4. Yeah, Kate is a big fan of all the Hammer horror films that were made back in Britain. A lot of people were, were fans of these, uh, these you know, low-budget films. And uh, a couple of her songs, Experiment 4 being one of them, is... Uh, well, the whole thing is based on the idea that the military might one day create a sound of some sort that is so awful that will actually kill people. Which is a variation on the South Park, uh, and I suppose she came first, uh, the brown noise. You know you know what I'm talking about? Ready, Kitty? No way. And also, we could probably go back to Monty Python, and the uh, the joke was that it was so lethal, it was deployed on the battlefield in World War II, II and killed a whole bunch of Germans. This man is Ernest Scribbler, manufacturer of jokes. In a few moments, he will think of the funniest joke in the world, and as a result, he will die laughing. Oh! <laughs> 
is is the brown noise a real thing? I don't know. I've investigated it a little bit. Some people swear by it, but I've never really decided. I've never really wanted to try it out for obvious reasons. Now, unlike Kate Bush explicitly, I didn't realize there are actual genres of horror music from horrorcore to psychobilly. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you think about what horror films, uh, gothic romances, and just general horror writing, I mean, you would obviously there are going to be some people who want to translate that into the world of music. So there's a bunch of different kinds. We can talk about horrorcore, which is a type of hip-hop that's based on supernatural, psychological horror, and the occult. Uh, there's there's Cool Keith, there's Insane Clown Posse. Some of their stuff could fall into the into this category. Some Eminem could fall into this category. But it, it's it's really on the rock side where we get into the horror stuff. I mean, we could talk about Bauhaus and all the gothic stuff. There's always some sort of you know level of occult that goes along with with much goth music. We could talk about. Um, well, we talk about Bauhaus being, you know, Bella Lugosi's dead and, you know, bands like Alien Sex Fiend and uh, Sex Gang Children and, and a whole bunch of others. Um, there's something called Death Rock, which is even more obsessed than your standard goth rock. So, so what's the difference between uh, Death Rock and Goth? More morbid, if you can believe it. There are, you know, bands like Christian Death. There's a band called 45 Grave. and some of the stuff that they do with, with uh, their early stuff that, that really was, you know, talking about the undead and all that sort of stuff. We have horror punk, which is a mix of goth and punk, plus uh, a healthy dollop of, you know, B-movies and horror films. Uh, the Misfits are probably the greatest of all the horror punk bands. There's also groups like Murder Dolls and my favorite band named Rosemary's Babies. Then we have uh, Psychobilly. Uh, Psychobilly is best described as a punk rock band formed by the Munsters. Really? Yeah. So lots of rockabilly influences and surf influences uh, mixed with, uh, you know, the goofiness of, of, of horror. Here I go, pulling down, down, down. My mind is blank, my head. very big in Central and Eastern Europe. There are a number of Canadian bands that have done extremely well in that part of the world. I can give you some examples of uh, horror uh, psychobilly bands, like The Creep Show and The Hellbillies, The Reverend Horton Heat. And probably the most famous of all the psychobilly bands has to be The Cramps. Now, this was a band that was formed in the wake of punk in the 1970s, and they were led by a singer named Lux Interior. And they did lots of, you know, weird... They had an album called Bad Music for Bad People. They had songs like Goo Goo Muck. When the sun goes down and the moon comes up 
life, uh, Lux Interior became very famous for his screaming. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola did Bram Stoker's Dracula back in 1992, and Gary Oldman was the lead character. He couldn't scream properly. So he asked his daughter, um, Sophia Coppola, do you know anybody with a great scream? And she says, yeah, there's this band called The Cramps with the singer named Lux Interior. He can do a great scream. So he was hired to do all the screams for Gary Oldman. Wow. Yeah, he was. And he was, uh, you know, there were other people that were brought in, other musicians that were brought in uh, to do growls and shrieks and sighs. Tom Waits does some growls in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And there was a, and also a woman named Diamanda Galaz who uh, did some, some sort of sexy vampiric sighs. Foley artistry. Well, yeah, uh, I was fascinated. My, my introduction to Foley artistry happened at the BBC a number of years ago where I went on a tour and uh, they actually put you through a Foley course. I know. Here I am. I'm like, I'm going to blow his mind on the topic of Foley artistry and some of the technology that's used. And what do you tell me? No, I took a course. Well, yeah, it was a one day <laughs> sort of thing, but it, it, it had all the old school uh, methods of, of generating these sounds. You know, They're you, still present day. Yeah, well, they are, because, you know, if you want to have a thunder clap, there's nothing like a piece of, of, of sheet metal to do that. Or if you want people, you know, sounds of, of, of footsteps. I mean, you have a old shoes and a, and a wooden plank. Okay, so I, let's go right back to the beginning of that course. Do you know why they call it the Foley artist? Uh, no, I don't. Why? Jack Foley was the man who was the first to do this. Back in 1891, he was born. He grew up and got into, of all things, the silent film business. Well, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense at all, because why do you need... Oh, wait a second. Was he performing along with silent films? No. He got into just the regular run-of-the-mill, getting into the film business, and when the talkies came along and they started recording audio with it, they needed a way to effectively record things like a door opening, closing, boots walking down the street, because the microphones weren't good enough at the time to pick that up on the set, so they'd have to add it in in post, as it were. And so he was one of those guys who was the first to do that, take a, a bed of rocks and walk a pair of empty army boots across it and record that to re replicate the sound of a guy walking across a, a dirt road, that sort of thing. And it just sort of evolved. Be well, when we got into radio theater in the 19, I guess, late 1920s and through the 30s and 40s, uh, I, I remember seeing, oh, where was it? It was you know, like NBC or, or CBS. And, you know, I was watching a film when they're doing one of these radio plays, and there was the Foley guy off to the off in the corner, uh, doing his stuff with his you know hunks of steel and metal and wood and whatever else he had. The modern day Foley artist has a lot more uh, technological background, but they still use some basic stuff. For example, Gary Hecker is considered to be the go-to guy as the Foley artist in Hollywood today. Uh, he did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, for example. And so um, I will play for you, Mr. Big Shot, I took a course. <laughs> and you tell me if you can guess um, what they actually used for these various sounds. So here's splattering blood. What do you think they used for splattering blood? Splattering blood. Okay. I know that one of the best things for 
crushing skulls is a cabbage. No, I'm asking about splattering blood. Right, right. So I'm just trying to talk my way through it. Yeah, yeah. This isn't uh, a trivial pursuit. You can't talk your way through it. Splattering blood. He would soak a leather car chamois in a bucket of water and squeeze it. And then if you needed gurgling blood, he'd gargle water. Ooh. Yeah. See, now... Okay, I'm trying to think what it would be like to be one of these guys. Right. Where, okay, you know, the director says, or the sound designer, whatever, who's ever in charge of the the audio in the film, says, okay, I need a sound that represents blank. You have to come up with it. And you think about Game of Thrones, for example. So, Oh, yeah. uh, Somebody is going to have a spear inserted violently through the back of their skull so it comes up between their eyes. We need a sound for that. The sound for a stabbing in the olden days, according to this guy, was you'd stab a chicken carcass, but the problem with it is that the chicken carcass has bones in it and it has gizzards and it gets really messy when you're stabbing a chicken. So now what they do is they take a cabbage and they stab it with a knife to create that crunching stab sound. Right, yeah. But my favorite one How do you recreate the sound of bones crunching? Crunching. Not breaking, but crunching. How do you go about replicating that? I don't know. I've never heard a bone crunch other than in a film, so... Uh, Wouldn't that be like like a piece of balsa wood or something, or...? You take that car chamois, you get it a little wet... Again, with the car chamois. Yeah, whatever is within reach. He grabs the car chamois, he gets it a little wet, puts in stalks of celery, wraps them with the chamois, and then snaps it. Oh, yeah, okay. How creepy is that? That is creepy. (laughs) But my favorite geeky one was uh, that uh, he had uh, talked about, uh, Gary Hecker, was um, his first movie he ever worked on was The Empire Strikes Back. And you remember the scene where they land in what they think is a, a cave, and it turns out to be a monster? Right. The creature's mouth, as they're walking along its tongue, he brought in huge slabs of meat and cracked eggs to create the effect of footsteps on a big wet tongue. Ground sure feels strange. Doesn't feel like rock. There's an awful lot of moisture in here. I don't know. I have a bad feeling about this. See, again, you're lying in bed at night and you, okay, I have to create this sound. What would this sound like? And you can just imagine all the trial and error that would go into something like this, right? Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We have patrons. Yay, thank you. Uh, Our producer will be very happy about this. Exactly. Vanessa Azoli is in charge of uh, pretty much everything at the big show here. And so your support goes right back into not only the show, but also making sure that she can take her hubby out for dinner once a month uh, so that uh, he doesn't get so upset with all the time she's spending with two other men. So um, the way you support the big show, of course, is by being a member of the world's worst intern program. What makes it the world's worst is you pay us a dollar per episode to work on the show. Don't do any actual work. And the only credit you get is uh, through the form of 
us saying thank you on the big show. Uh, but uh, we have a bunch of new interns to thank, including Laura Poo, uh, David Duva, uh, Paul Seal, Microsurf, uh, and uh, Wait, a bunch of other Microsurf as an S E R F? Yeah, that's that's the name he's gone by. <laughs> Good, I like it. Uh, Grant Ridge, uh, Frank Favari uh, as well, and uh, Kevin Volkman. Uh, they uh, adjusted their pledge. Also, uh, Chef Mike Benninger, who was uh, the co producer last week, has reduced it back down to a buck, so he's technically still working for the show, even though he's not a co producer. Okay, that's fine. So we appreciate all of that. Thank you so much for making it possible to keep the big show on the air. We've had to update, upgrade our internet service because of the success of the show, so that costs us that much more. So thank you very much. Yes, and I'm having computer problems uh, that you can't hear with this show, so I may have to upgrade, but I don't think we have nearly enough money to do that. No, I don't think no. so. It's time for another GNB Mug Tour 2014 update. 2017! Where has this week's miracle travel mug of traveling traveled to now? Scott Coates enjoying a beverage in Thailand. He says he's happy to have his favorite podcast back. He's, it looks like he's sitting in some sort of monument or amusement park ride of a little bird. And I don't quite know what that is. It looks highly photoshopped. It's very suspect. But he, I, I do know for a fact he's in Thailand because he's claimed so before. We want to thank Andrew Stokely, who uh, on Twitter with the hashtag GN is in Norman, GNB Mug Tour 2017, also said that he's washing the baby up. He hasn't seen it for a while. Thanks uh, to have you guys back. Uh, we also have uh, Andrew Pop, who's in his car. It looks like the car is uh, in park as he takes this photo, so he's uh, being safe about this. And Snapshot tweeted that he's going to be doing some traveling this summer, so he's got to get one in time for the trip. The way you do it, of course, is go to geeksandbeats.com, uh, click on the swag store, and grab one. We get like five bucks or something out of the total cost of the thing. Oh, well, that's good. This has been another GNB Mug Tour 2015 update. 2017! Over at uh, the Twitter machine, we were also tweeting and asking if anybody thought they'd like to watch how the sausages are made. So we did a poll, and uh, of those who had responded to the question, would you watch Alan Cross and Hainsworth TV record a Geeks and Beats episode on Facebook Live on a Sunday at 7 p.m.? Two out of three respondents said yes. Uh, how many respondents did we get? <laughs> 41. Oh, okay. I'm okay with that then. So maybe we should do something once a month. What do you think? Maybe we should do something. Next week on The Big Show, we've got Trump's Ties. Yeah, this is the guy that photoshops Trump's ties into all kinds of uh, interesting situations. This, uh, of course, Trump's ties are the most unruly ties since that of Dilbert. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. Oh!